You're listening to the best of the Tom Bernard Show.com, brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Who, me? <laughs> so I'd like to know if I was married to a whore piece of shit. <laughs> you could just look at her license. My. Special stripe. That was amazing. Oh my gosh. Coming by sweet corn, potatoes, onions, pickles. It's not how you use them, sir. <laughs> it's really sickening that anybody would be into radio this much. It is ungoddamn believable. I think I'm going to hell. I just realized it. Thank you, Tom. You're just delicious. <laughs> We're here today with Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean Bryant. Michael, what's going on? You know, we keep getting phone calls, and it's interesting because people try to handle a lot of stuff on their own, or they try to talk to the adjusters, or they wait, um, and they think maybe it'll cost them money if they talk to me. And, you know, we tell them it's free to talk to us. Um, I go through what their rights are and, you know, we try to help them as best we can. We don't sign everyone up. Sometimes I just give them advice and they go from there and then call us back later. But the key is, is that they don't know all their rights or they're not told all the rights by the adjuster. And that's one of the things we try to make sure that they get, you know, they get that understanding, uh, so they can help themselves and their families the best they can. And the number is? Is 800 770 or at the website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Brad, Sean Bryant, Michael Bryant, thank you. Seeking justice for the injured, Brad, Sean Bryant. Welcome back, everybody, to yet another episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast, brought to you by Brad, Sean Bryant. This is a very interesting episode. It is the Pandemic Plus episode, covering some doctors and experts and people who have talked about this stinking virus for for a little while now. Starting off the show, we had Mike Osterholm from the U of M making the rounds nationally. Next on The Best Of... Michael Osterholm on the phone. Welcome, Michael. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Actually, it's Osterholm. Wongo, Osterholm. But that's close enough, you know. Okay. Hmm. I'm sure you never get that. No one ever. I never do. <laughs> never. It's when my kids get Fair wrong, either. it gets more of a... <laughs> <laughs> get under your skin sometimes? <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, welcome. You're here to talk about the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it a little bit already, and we have another doctor and, and, in and studio. We, we've talked about it already, and I, <clears throat> I hope and pray that you will not dispel anything that we've said so far. It would be just well. Weird. That'll be good to know what you said, so I'll try. To know what I <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I guess I, I've, as a physician, I've sort of taken an optimistic outlook at this, and that, you know, I've, I've looked, I've just thought about the number of people who are infected with the virus that have trivial symptoms or very little symptoms have never been tested. So, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, I, you know, I'm, I guess I've insinuated that the number of people who get terribly sick from this, 
the percentage is is maybe less than the 20 percent that they are quoting just because you you don't know how many people are going to end up getting this with little or no symptoms yeah actually um the data out of china actually suggests there's not that many really mildly ill people i mean the the number isn't quite as good but that's not the important driving number the number that is really most critical is what uh, what is the likely number of people who get infected, period. Right. Um, you know, you can have a disease that kills 100% of people, but if only 10 people get it, it's not very bad. Mm-hmm. You can have a disease that kills only 0.1% of the people, but if 3 billion people get it, that's bad. Yeah. And so this is going to be the 3 billion 0.1% kind of thing. This mm-hmm. is not good. This will. This is going to make a serious flu season not seem so bad. So is, it, is it going to pale the uh, uh, turn of the 20th century? The, with the no, it 19th? won't be as, probably as large as the 1918, but it sure has the potential. And the other thing that we don't understand right now is that in China, the underlying risk factors for severe outcome and death was male smokers, older, underlying health conditions. Um, that surely is a challenge. On the other hand, what they don't have in China, which we have a lot of, is obesity. And obesity is a huge risk factor for acute respiratory distress syndrome with a condition like this. And so when you overlay this virus in our population, it could be a lot worse than we saw in China. So, so it is true that the people who are getting it bad, dying from it, or you're having serious uh, repercussions from it afterwards, they, they they do have, the majority have underlying illnesses or underlying Some conditions? Some do, but not, not every. I mean, look at the last four physicians who have died in the last two weeks. All of them were physicians between the ages of 29 and 40. None of them had underlying health conditions. Okay. And, wh- and why do you suppose that they Just, succumb? It's, it's what we're seeing. I mean, it's uh, clearly, you know, the the rate of serious outcomes or death are much lower in that population, but they still occur. Um, it's so it's not a clear cut picture of why someone does or doesn't get ARDS. Um, but we do know that if you are an older individual and a smoker, your rate of ARDS is much higher. Okay, but but there are uh, uh, ways to mechanically treat with pressure ventilation, be able to treat ARDS to a certain extent. Yeah. Part of the problem there is we don't have the capacity. Every ECMO bed right now in the Twin Cities is filled. Everyone okay. right this Jeez. moment is filled. And that's without any coronavirus infection. So part of it is we have such a fragile healthcare system in terms of capacity. Uh, also, we're down a number of the hospitals in the upper Midwest right now have less than five days worth of protective equipment for healthcare workers. And so, uh, you know, they're all in back order. And the challenges are going to be huge uh, if we start overlaying coronavirus infection on healthcare workers and start seeing them develop illness and die. Then that's when things get really dicey. And, and do you do you think this is shining a light on the flaw of having one country or one area uh, producing so many of our drugs, so many of our supplies, so many yeah. medical? Yeah, our group has actually been studying the drug issue for the last 18 months. We've been funded by the Walton Family Foundation to do that. And we clearly are demonstrating the very um, major reliance that we have on China for uh, critical drug supply chains. Uh, They also are tied in closely to India. Ironically, India is also tied to China because a number of the APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients coming from China to India is what India ultimately uses to manufacture. So between the two of them, if you actually look at protective equipment, personal protective equipment, actually we have a lot of capacity here in North America. The 
problem is that healthcare systems have such little in the way of extra resources, they go out and buy it and stockpile it, so they don't. They tend to do the classic, I guess you call it the Amazon one-button push kind of order, where they just assume that uh, if I order it this afternoon, it'll be here tomorrow morning. And uh, there's no way that with the manufacturing capacity as it is, you know, if they were operating at 1,000% instead of 100%, you still couldn't match up the actual needs with what can be produced. So that's where we're really hurting badly right now. Yeah, there that, was no stockpiling of this material that we, you know, knew we'd need one day. Yeah, that was the the whole point. Is that the supply chain economics are such as that? Yep. Why are we yep. why are we exactly. holding all this stuff in a supply chain when yep. we can just you know streamline that so much so that yeah. there's nothing yeah. in that supply chain, and when yep. it stops, when you if and that's assuming that your productive areas work all the time, but when they yep. as soon as they yep. stop, there's nothing yeah. around. Yeah. My question is, what is what are the, it sounds like the flu, you know, like symptom-wise. So what's the difference between the coronavirus and having the flu? Like what? Yeah. Anytime we look at a virus and what it can do to a population, there really are two different parts of that virus-human interaction that become critical. One is how easily is it transmitted, meaning that uh, how many people are likely to get infected. And this virus is transmitted very, very similarly to what we'd see with an influenza virus. Um, very dynamic transmission. Uh, we know that people uh, early in their illness and possibly even before onset of illness are able to transmit the virus. That's why today it has worldwide distribution uh, and where it's located, the case numbers are increasing rapidly. Uh, that's something you expect to see with the flu virus. So the second thing, though, that makes a virus um, very important in terms of what it does to humans is is how severe is the disease. And with this particular virus, we see a case fatality rate or the percentage of people who get it that die, uh, likely right around 2%. You know, there's been estimates it could be a little higher, a little lower, but each data point keeps coming back to about 2%. Um, most of those are older individuals, people with underlying health conditions are surely at a higher risk. Uh, and that compares to with influenza virus, and particularly a bad flu season, of about 0.1%. Uh, in the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed primarily young, healthy adults was at about 3.5%. So it gives you a sense that somewhere between 1918, but it's a lot more severe than that with influenza. What we're really at this point uh, at a loss to understand, and unfortunately time will give us that information, is what will it look like when it shows up in a country like ours, which it is now doing. Here, one of the age group uh, risk factor issues that we have is the overlap with aging population and obesity. Uh, We know that obesity is clearly a risk factor for bad outcomes with this type of pneumonia. And uh, unlike China, which has a very, very low level of obesity, uh, we have an epidemic going on here in the United States and a number of high-income countries. So we can actually see the case mortality rate increase, not go down, when it comes into the United States just because of the overlap between obesity and infection with this virus. So is it basically the symptoms of yeah, the, the flu symptoms are Yeah, the symptoms actually similar? are very much... I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, no, the symptoms are very much like influenza. <clears throat> Starts out with a dry, non-productive cough, may have fever, and many individuals will not get much sicker than that. Um, however, those that do, this has also been an illness requiring a great deal of medical care. Um, 
uh, oftentimes patients will be hospitalized and it's in their third week or later that they actually die. And uh, this basically takes up a lot of medical care resources and makes the stress on the system even more than just, you know, having someone with a serious illness. So it's turning into pneumonia or what is... Yep. This illness is actually uh, causing a pneumonia that from an x-ray standpoint, it's very classic uh, in its presentation. It, it uh, has been, as labeled by the radiologist, causes a ground glass kind of picture, which is different and easily distinguished from most of the causes of pneumonia. Um, then in the to- top of that, there is an additional uh, uh, condition that occurs called acute respiratory distress syndrome which is in part actually an immune response by the host that becomes extremely vigorous and actually starts doing damage to the body, which then in turn uh, only complicates the whole picture. And uh, a number of the patients are actually dying from this uh, acute respiratory distress, distress syndrome. Okay. So what if somebody were to come down with coronavirus, what would you say is their best course of action to get over it quickly and not have it turn into anything dangerous? Unfortunately, there's nothing that anyone can do today besides getting good medical support, meaning uh, making sure that you uh, maintain your blood pressure with medications and appropriate fluids. Um, There's not any medication we can give you um, that is specifically tied to, to the virus. Uh, there is several medications that are in research right now that are being looked at and we call clinical trials, but uh, this is pretty much supportive care. And the challenge we have today, the kind of supportive care, can, care you need can be uh, a rather uh, sophisticated care. Uh, there's a type of machine we call an ECMO machine that um, basically is a heart and lung type machine that can help a lot. Uh, but at any given day in the Twin Cities, every ECMO machine we have is already taken. It's yeah. built. So the problem we're going to have is, uh, uh, you know, what kind of care can we provide, particularly if we have a big surge of cases. Um, you know, we're going to be, in many cases, at best providing good nursing care and uh, supportive care as such and, and not high-tech intensive care medicine. Where, where, might we, where might we be with regards to a, a vaccine or immunization? Uh, vaccines are going to be, I at best guess, years off. Uh, there's a lot of hype right now, and I call it happy talk, which I think is a real distraction because it gives people the sense it is right around the corner. Uh, there are two issues that we have to address. One is how well does the vaccine work? And we don't even really know yet quite how to uh, measure the protection that an individual needs to develop in order to actually fight off a coronavirus infection. And uh, how that vaccine is going to do that is still unclear. The second thing is safety. Um, There was a condition that was recognized early on uh, with SARS vaccine research, a similar coronavirus, in which it's called antibody-dependent enhancement, or ADE. ADE is where you have uh, a situation where if you have no antibody at all, you know, these protective proteins, then, in fact, you end up having uh, a disease. If you have lots of protection with this antibody, then you end up in uh, basically 
fully protected, but if you have an intermediate level, it may actually cause you to develop, again, another immune response that can be a very severe da- uh, organ-damaging kind of response. This is exactly what we saw with the dengue vaccine uh, that was used in parts of the world, particularly the Philippines, where it was withdrawn after uh, kids became more severely ill uh, when they did finally get dengue infection, having been vaccinated than not. So given that this is a safety concern with this vaccine, we're going to clearly uh, have to have a lot of safety information before it's going to get licensed. I just don't see all of this happening before several years. So whatever we have now is what we're going to have going into this battle with this coronavirus. And unfortunately, vaccines not going to be one of them. And, and what, what, do you have any timeline prediction? I know that's dangerous to, to ask or to try to do. Timeline prediction as to when we are going to see this nationwide? Um, right now, it is nationwide. I'm absolutely convinced of that now. I think that, uh, you know, it was interesting. We've had an absence of testing due to the problems with uh, the test kit development at the CDC. Uh, while the rest of the world were testing hundreds of thousands of people, we were testing people in the, in the 4,000 range total uh, for the country. And uh, now that testing has become more available since last weekend, uh, I had predicted uh, just on Friday night on a TV talk show that within the next 72 hours after that, we'd see a, a, a number of cases getting reported and exactly what happened. That's going to continue as we have 75,000 tests uh, that are going to go out this week. And the more we test, the more we're going to find it. I think Seattle, which has been hard hit uh, there, uh, a large uh, long-term care facility outbreak, a number of cases in the community that have no apparent link to any other cases, as well as uh, other areas in the country, which as they start testing like Seattle did on Thursday and Friday, are going to see more of this. So at this point, you have to more or less consider the United States, and for that matter, most countries in the world, is a pretty homologous uh, uh, and homogeneous cauldron of virus activity. Do you think, I've heard a couple of people say that this has actually been in America for a lot longer than people think, but now we're just finding it because we're finally testing for it. So do you think yeah. it's been here for longer than people believe? Well, I'm not sure what that means in terms of what people believe. Uh, this virus emerged likely almost like a lightning strike as a jump between an animal and a human mm-hmm. back in the third week of November. We can actually date these viruses fairly well today based on what we know their mutational rate is. And so the whole world hadn't seen this before uh, late November. Um, from that time period, its amplification in the Wuhan, China area meant that a lot of people got infected there. Some of that spilled over to the rest of the world. Uh, its early introduction in the United States probably occurred in late December, early January. Uh, for those that we know, it was, a little, it was the first week of January or later. Um, so it hasn't circulated before that time. But clearly, between uh, the middle to the end of January and now early March, uh, there was likely substantial transmission inside the United States, and that's what we're now picking up with our testing. Yep. And 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 are you know we I, we talked before, and and you said that it wasn't the case, but are there when when there do I, I just read through the um, our Minnesota state recommendation with regards to testing and who should be tested, mm-hmm. and people who are relatively asymptomatic shouldn't be tested. So those people aren't. That's being, all changing. The okay. recommendations that were. Uh, put forward for testing were based totally on trying to match up uh, the testing availability Mm -hmm. with who to test first. So it was a triage list. Now 
that we have more widespread testing. Uh, people who are symptomatic uh, with a respiratory illness who don't have an otherwise defined cause, so it's not influenza, it's not something else, should absolutely be tested. Um, in family settings where we have cases, uh, some will be testing asymptomatic individuals, meaning that uh, we want to understand this. One of the areas we have a lot of work we need to do is understanding kids. Uh, in China, only about 2.1% of the cases were in individuals 19 years of age or younger. Um, one of the issues we have to understand, are they just not getting infected uh, and not ill, or are they getting infected and they're just not getting ill? That latter one makes a big difference for us because if they're getting infected, they might serve as an important source of spreading this virus to family members and others in the community. If they're not getting infected and not ill, that means that the last thing we want to do is close schools. Uh, closing schools is a highly disruptive activity in a community. Mm-hmm. It surely uh, penalizes low-income earning families because they often have to take off from work and not get paid. Uh, to take care of these children. And so uh, at this point, we want to be really certain about that, but we don't know yet, but it doesn't look like kids clearly are going to play a major role in terms of illness, and what we have to make sure is they're also not getting infected. So so what should... So so I guess I I keep coming back to that. We don't know the... So we're going to be testing everybody? Is everybody going to be tested more than once? I, is that well, I don't think we'll be testing everyone. I think it's a matter of testing people who are symptomatic okay. uh, and testing people and, and not finding another cause for their illness or people who are in family clusters or uh, workplace clusters that otherwise don't have symptoms. Now, in terms of testing everybody, when you're talking about that, that's suggesting people who are otherwise well, who have no exposures, who don't have a contact back to a case. We don't anticipate testing those people right now, but uh, those who are symptomatic, absolutely, we want to find out just what percentage of people in this country actually have this virus as opposed to, say, influenza or some other uh, respiratory uh, disease-causing agent. So... So really, we so there's a, so it is possible that there's a goodly number of pe- people who have the virus that will never be tested. Uh, that's very possible, although it's not a large number of people who are asymptomatic. You know, that's a kind of a fine line. What's the symptom mean? You know, if I've just got done taking an international flight between Asia and here, I might feel like when I arrive, I'm not feeling well, and uh, that's pretty normal with jet lag. Once we're inside the United States, uh, and we're not talking about international travel anymore, you know, I may have just had a bad day. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well last night. Those may be the extent of the symptoms that somebody's going to have, and those people very well may not get tested. But we think that most people have some form of symptoms, even if it's very, very mild illness. Okay. Yeah, but they may get we may not test them either because they just may not. They may not get tested yeah, depending right. again on on uh, test availability and whether somebody suspects that this is there. Okay. What we have to do is assume that most people will get infected with this virus over the course of the next uh, four to six months. Okay, and then we're well. Uh, who's making these test kits? The test kits right now are coming primarily up from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to state and local health departments. Okay. But there are a number of private entities, both uh, health care uh, uh, systems as well as private manufacturers that are making them uh, under uh, emergency authorization from the FDA. And uh, so we're going to see a rapid expansion of testing uh, coming online very shortly. Super. 
Okay. Well, well I think, good. Yeah, well, thank you guys. Thank you. Edit me out, okay? I'm. I, I know I sound bad, okay? No. You don't sound you bad. Sound you sound, sound great. wonderful. And you had lots well, of really and, well, you, you haven't talked to my kids then, okay? Because <laughs> they would tell you quite the opposite. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's how kids are. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. Michael Osterholm on the best of. Coming up next, we had another doctor on this week. We had on Steve Hotze talking about, guess what, coronavirus. What they were talking about next. Yeah, I'd like to hear you. Like I said, to hear hear you two talk, a couple of docs talk about this coronavirus thing because politicians are are literally trying to terrify people. Yep, <clears throat> and uh, it's really pissing me off. We as we Steven. saw on Twitter, it's there's a lot of misinformation out there. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, ladies and gentlemen. Doctor Stephen F. Hotz, is that how you say your last name, uh, Stephen? Hotze, it's Hotze, H O T Z E. Hotze from the great state of Doctor. Texas. <laughs> From the great state of Texas, baby. That's all you need to know. Hey, it's all it's all a seventy five degrees here. How are you guys doing up there in the Twin Cities? Forty, I think. It's uh, seventy six. No, just kidding. It's forty one today and fifty tomorrow. You holy wish that's not bad. And it's sunny. The sun, the sun is more important yeah, yeah, than the degree right here. You bet it is. You we're, bet it is. We're, we're right up thirty five. Interstate thirty five from you. Yes, we are. Yep. Straight well, up there you go. Yeah, just true. up, just up the road. That's what we say. Just up the road. Yeah. <laughs> just up the road. It's a long Dr. road. Stephen you know. uh, the mass hysteria over COVID nineteen. We also have Dr. Ralph Basham in studio to hear you two talk about this. It's going to be fascinating, I think. Well, that's a big. I don't know where. Uh, uh, hey, Doc uh, Basham. Good. To- Good to meet you, sir. Nice to meet you too. Nice to meet you too, doctor. You know this. This been. I would. I'm gonna have to agree with you. There's a little hysteria going on, and and that and that sort of sort. That's a sexist word, and I'm gonna apologize that for right up front. But it, there's a little bit too much uh, media attention and just focusing on how bad. No, it's they're focusing on how bad this could be. Right. Well, let's. You know. We're down here in, in Houston right now. It's warming up, and usually that takes care of all the viruses. They're used, the flu season, all that's pretty much gone down here. Whereas up north, you guys still are suffering from some of that. But let's let's just, Doc, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I'm a grown man. I've been in, I've been practicing medicine since '76, and you've probably been practicing longer than that, maybe less. But I have a little experience over time, and this isn't the first time we've seen mass hysteria about some infectious disease go back to um go back to the anthrax yeah. in 2001 then we had sars yeah. uh, uh, in 2002 then we had the bird flu in 2005 we had the swine flu in 2009 we had the mers in 2012 ebola in 14 and 16 and the zika virus in 18 and now we've got the coronavirus and we got, and in 2020 and, and look this isn't as you're well aware doc and, and the but our listening audience didn't this is COVID-19. It's the 19th one they've identified over the decades that they've identified. Now, the coronavirus is a common virus. It's one of the common viruses that causes the simple cold. It also caused the SARS virus in 2002 and the MERS in 2014. So the coronavirus is not some 
something new. The strain of it is new. That's given. But let's just look at the statistics. And I don't know what you've got, Doc, but I'm going to work off the CDC statistics. Yesterday at 4 o'clock, it said there were 424 presumptive cases of the coronavirus and 19 deaths. Now, it may be 100 more and a couple more deaths, you know, today. Whatever it is, it's somewhere around 500 have ha- have have have, uh, and they're not even confirmed yet. And in 20 deaths, is that an epidemic? Is that something for us to wring our hands about? I'm going to tell you, there is an epidemic going on in America that's been going on since October the first that has killed tens of thousands of people and in infectious disease. And no, it's not Lyme's disease, and it's not syphilis. It's the good old fashioned flu epidemic that we get every year in America, year in and year out, approximately 50,000 Americans die of the simple flu every year. That's like uh, all the people who died in Vietnam War every year. That's a lot of people. This year, the CDC says, and this is on their website for anybody to look at, don't believe me, go look at the CDC reports. They say as of... February 22nd, there are up to 45 million, that's M, million Americans have contracted the flu, up to 560,000 hospitalizations, up to 45,000 deaths. That's a lot of people, and the flu season isn't over. So you ask yourself, really? What should we be concerned about? If we were really concerned about the spread of an infectious disease that's killing people, Starting October 1st through the end of March, we would stay at home. We would not. We'd close all the schools down. No church services, no uh, sports events, and no public events anywhere. Everybody would just hunker down for six months so we don't spread the flu. But we've grown used to it. You know, they go, yeah, Doc Bashan got the flu. He's out of the office this week. Nobody at the office, they don't go quarantine themselves. Everybody knows the flu's around. They go, well, at least we got treatment for it. Well, you know, and I do, Doc, that the treatment is is, is basically supportive. Yeah, you can get the Tamiflu if you catch it in time. They may cut a day out of the disease. Oh, but we vaccinate for it. Oh, really? How good is the vaccination? If the vaccination were so good, we wouldn't have 50,000 deaths a year of the flu. And the reason the, and the vaccines are so ineffective is because they're having to use last year's flu virus is what they have. And they're creating a vaccine that takes six months to produce it. Yep. Well, by then, the flu has now mutated you got a new strain. So 50% of the people that get the flu have had the flu shot. didn't work. So so really the key thing is, let me, let me finish with this last thought. The key thing is you can't depend upon the government, the insurance company, your doctor, your spouse, or anybody to get you healthy. Take care of your own health. My recommendation at our center, and I do natural approaches to health, A, B, C, D, and Z. Vitamin A. In a B-complex, vitamin C, I recommend 6,000 milligrams a day. I've done that for 30 years or more. And also vitamin D, up to 10,000 units uh, every day. Plus zinc, 50,000 milligrams. That's what I recommend to my patients. I've got a Dr. Hotze's immune pack. That's it, Hotze vitamins, H-O-T-Z-E vitamins. If you want to get it, get yourself healthy and eat healthy. Cut out all the simple carbs and the sugars. Those depress the immune system. Vitamin A, B, C, D, and Z strengthen the immune system. Get healthy and don't expect to get sick. You're going to do fine. This is going to pass like every other one of these hysterical infectious disease concerns have passed in the, over the years. We're going to be fine. Yep. 
<laughs> that's my, me, that's my hey. That's that's what I've been, I've been on the radio now. I think this is my sixteenth in two days, all over the world. Oh, <laughs> trying there to trying to trying to calm the waters, you know. And uh, look, I'm sixty nine. Am I doing anything different? You know, hey, doc, they say wash your hands. How many times a day is enough? How many is too little? Five too little? Twenty too many? When do you wash your hands? I mean, you, the key thing is get your immune system healthy and. and and listen, Doc can tell you this as well as I can. Everybody since your childhood days, since you were born, you've been exposed to a million of virus particles and bacteria every day. A droplet of somebody's cough contains millions of virus bacteria particles, virus particles. What can you do? You've got an immune system God's given you that helps build up blocking antibodies so you're alive today and not dead. I'm 69. I've been, I'm a doctor. I've been exposed to everything. People say, I don't want to shake your hand, Doc. I may give you some. Sir, I'm a doctor. I shake everybody's hand. I build up. I've got immunity. I've got immunity to this. Yeah. Right. Yep. I I was when I was uh, on, on Children's Hospital Service in Chicago. I was there for three months in the in the surgery service, and I was sick for three months. I continuously right as one cold ended, next one started. And you are exposed to everything. Yeah, and it stimulates your immune system in in all manner of ways. So. Yeah, it, it, you. That's a key part of it. You know, I was, I was, I've, I've been looking at. If you look at in China, and some people say, "Oh, China's not reporting all their cases." If you take the number of cases that have been reported, say, hundred thousand cases in China. If you take that many cases, and you say, "Well, they're, they're underreporting," and you make it a million cases, so they they underreported right. by ten tolls. Still, the incidence, the incidence of a symptomatic, symptomatic, confirmed case in China. Is point zero mm-hmm. zero seven. There you go. So not even. It's just. Yeah, not even a tenth so of a you've percent. Got to, you've got you, what you've got to say. It is not very contagious, or else all the Chinese would have it. Think of it: one in ten Americans catches the flu every year. Yeah. Now you and I both know who catches it: the elderly, the infirmed, people that are uh, that are debilitated, people that have maybe severe. Uh, heart failure or heart problems. They got chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They got diabetes. Sick people get sick. Yeah, it's the healthy people go. don't get sick. Why do, well, you know, think about. Look, nobody said anything. Nobody said anything about this. Just think about this. Okay, we're all concerned about the twenty-five or fifty or maybe a hundred or a thousand people that may die of this virus. You know how many people are going to die every year from a heart uh, from heart disease? Six hundred twenty thousand. That's 1,800 every day dying of heart disease, which is preventable. God. If you correct your eating program, get on a good vitamin and mineral supplement, keep your blood pressure down, you know, you can prevent these things. These are things we ought to focus on where there are literally thousands of people dying every day. Yeah. But no, we're going to throw a fit and we're going to close down every school and we're not going to have any sporting events because we're scared of getting the coronavirus. Yeah, it's, and, just, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, the question I've raised is where, you know, so if this is such a bad thing, where are all the cases from people that have been on a plane ride with you know people that you know had the coronavirus? You know, and it hasn't spread to Africa. I mean, it's, it's a bizarre, there's a, there's a disconnect there where if this is so bad and so infectious, all those people on, how many people on the plane should have been, in each plane ride should have been oh, infected? Yeah. yeah. And well, you know, they, had it, they, had the, they had the CPAC, which is a conservative political action committee. Somebody there had the coronavirus. Now they're wondering, should the president isolate himself because he shook hands with somebody who was there and he was there? And, 
you know, I mean, sir, did we do that with the flu? Nope. You know, if you were, if I was sick and I got the flu, my office keeps running the next day. They don't all shut down and go into quarantine. That's just life in the big city. By the way, I haven't had the flu since 1995, somewhere in the 90s. I had the flu one time, and I thought I was going to die. It was really, it was not good. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrific thing. Uh, and, but, but look, the coronavirus and the flu have the same symptoms. You get fever, you get chills, you get headaches, body aches. You, you know, you're anorexic, you're not hungry, you're fatigued. In routine, your last five to seven days, you get over, and you kind of in the next two, week or two, you're 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 out of the woods if you get it. It's the it's the infirmed and the debilitated and the elderly that are in nursing homes. These people are not healthy, and they get a strain of this stuff. Sure, it's not going to be a pretty it's not going to be pretty. It's going to take a lot of people out. But that's the that's the nature of life. That's what happens when people get older and they're sick and infirmed. They're, you know their immune systems are down. That's what happens. They're going to die of something. Unfortunately. Uh, you know, they may get the flu and die, but it's it's going to happen sooner or later. You can't keep, you know, we're not going to live forever. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that that happens, but it's understandable that, that those are the people that would be most likely to be uh, impacted by this. It, it turns out that apparently little kids aren't impacted much by this virus. No, no. not at all. They, they, they get, well, I don't know if they're hardly even symptomatic from it. So right. They, and they should be spreading it around. You know, everybody. Should, it really should. Everybody should have been exposed to this. It's conceivable. There, it's a, there's an argument you made. Right. We all may. We may have already all been exposed to it. Right. You know, and and it's just not showing up. Well, if you were exposed to it, does that mean you have to go into quarantine? I mean, where do you draw the line? What about these poor people that were floating around at the Pacific Ocean for two weeks, and they get off the boat and they oh. put them in a put them in an army camp for two weeks, quarantine them? I want to. I want to go. Like really. I'd be hopping mad if that was happening. Trust me, I know why I've never liked it. I kind of believe I know that. Why I've never li- I know why I've never wanted to go on a cruise. <laughs> Finally, I told my wife, I said, honey, this is why I never want to go on a cruise. You get stuck on those things. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, one, you know a couple of things that, that you did, did, did uh, touch on. One is, uh, you know, is that was sort of a, a medical dictum that you mentioned, is that sick people get sick and common things occur commonly. So, you know, right. don't be looking for odd things you know, to make you sick because, you know, there are so many other things that can get you. You know, and you, and about, you talk about things in America that are killing people that we're doing virtually nothing about. You can talk about, you can talk about the narcotic, right. the illegal narcotics use and the deaths well, sure. from How illegal narcotics. How many people narcotics? that killing? Let's yeah. look at that. Now, we, we talked about it and said that's a problem. What about people that die? This is in the, this is in the medical journals about the people that die from iatric uh, illnesses. Those are doctor-induced yeah. problems. You go in the hospital, 120 or 150,000 people die from drug drug interactions on doctor-prescribed, FDA-approved drugs. It just kills them, you know, they interact. And that's a lot of people, but nobody's raising a stink over that. 125,000 is a lot of people. That's the statistics. It may be a whole lot more than that. How many people are taking you know, prescription drugs and, and, and are having terrible side effects. Oh, yeah. A lot. Yeah. That's why I do my best to get our people off drugs and to get them healthy and well naturally. I was trained conventionally at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston, but I'd be a medical heretic. I really believe God gave the body amazing restorative powers. If you keep your body healthy and put good, good molecules in it and eat good food, exercise, you're going to be a whole lot better off and you're not going to need to get on all these medications because you're, you know, overweight, you got high blood pressure, heart disease, and kidney problems, and, and Alzheimer's now because you didn't take care of your body. Take charge of your health, folks. It's your health. If you don't take charge of it, nobody's going to. Yeah. Yeah. Lay off the heaters. Ladies and gentlemen, 
the book, Hypothyroidism, Health and Happiness, The Riddle of Illness Revealed, available everywhere. Dr. Stephen F. Hotze, H-O-T-Z-E. Doctor, great guest today. Appreciate your time. Uh, I, I just really Thank wish you. our politicians would back off and stop going after each other, trying to scare us. I, I that, that makes me so angry, I can't even tell you. What do you think they're trying to do? They want to shut down Trump rallies. I, I guarantee you that. They don't want any more Trump rallies. <laughs> Man, it kind of looks like it. Thank you, Doctor. Appreciate your time God today, God bless sir. you guys. Do well. Get warm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it done. Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. on the best of coming up next closing out the show we're opening up the old vault not too far back to episode 1561 with infectious disease expert cornelia davis next on the best of and we have our guest uh, Dr. Cornelia Davis, who is an author and a speaker and a renowned epidemiologist and disease detective, which I kind of like that disease detective. She was sent by the World Health Organization to Ethiopia in the 90s to prevent and control meningitis epidemics, which you know, we all know what meningitis can do to a you know yes. community. And um, thank you for all the medical science and discoveries and work that you do. I'm fascinated by this topic. And we do have our resident doctor, Dr. Ralph Basham. Um, you've written two books, Searching, is it Sitalamata? Sitalamata. Sitalamata. Okay, Eradicating Smallpox. And the three years in Ethiopia and how the civil war and epidemics led me to my daughter. Um, and it, it is Black History Month. And over the break, we were talking about Henrietta Lacks. She is not a doctor, but I was talking to Andy and Ralph about her, how she contributed to medical science with uh, what it, it's called. What is it? A, a gene that she had? Uh, the HeLa cells. The HeLa cells. And um, but you are also here to talk about how a lot of African American doctors have contributed to the world in medical science and studies, and um, and how they have helped create breakthroughs in that. Yes, absolutely. Um, because it is Black History Month, I think it's important that people realize um, how much African American doctors have done. Um, I might mention, um, well, one of um, the well-known doctors, and he's, who's currently in the news all the time now, Dr. Ben Carson. Mm -hmm. He was the first neurosurgeon to successfully separate conjoined twins attached at the back of the head. Now, um, Dr. Carson was one of the youngest physicians to direct the pediatric neurosurgery at Baltimore's Johns Hopkins Hospital. You know, currently he's um, in this administration's um, 
Department of uh, Housing and Urban Development. But as a physician, I mean, a neurosurgeon, he really uh, contributed uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also, Um, too, well, I was going to say, too, um, I mean, even even the... uh, an ophthalmologist, uh, Patricia Bath, h- how she was popularizing laser surgery for cataracts. And now laser surgery is everywhere. Everybody's getting, you know, laser. My dad just had cataract surgery on both eyes. So what kind of mm-hmm. breakthroughs did she make um, in that kind of field? Well, actually, Dr. Patricia Bath, Uh, was the first black female physician awarded a patent for a medical invention. Mm -hmm. And that invention, she was an ophthalmologist. Uh, It was a new device and technique for cataract surgery, and it was called laser saco. And uh, it was used um, now. That was a while ago, and I'm sure there have been improvements on the laser but she did the first, um, she got the patent for the first uh, invention on that. And that was a female, black female physician. Oh, wow. I, I find this stuff so yeah. fascinating. Just the, the intuition that these physicians do to, to see the bigger picture in things. I mean, Ralph, what kind of, um, have you come up with any type of, all right, now you're putting me on the spot. Any, any type of patent that makes me rich and not have to do this? No, I haven't. But, you know, but, but the, the combination of uh, being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. and then having the intellect and the intestinal fortitude to get, be, to get your idea recognized and then uh, published and then patented, it's, just, it's a huge, it's a huge, mm-hmm. a huge jump. I mean, it, that it is... It is, it's Herculean. Um, you have to be creative, yeah, and um, yeah. you have to have a vision uh, and then be able to research that out. And not every physician can do that, but, you know, it, as you said, uh, you have to be somewhere at the right time and putting two and two together. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, well- yeah, because I mean, okay, I'm I'm reading in in the description here, uh, Doctor Charles Drew, he was the one that pioneered blood transfusions. Now, when you think about it, yes. how many lives have been saved because of Char- Doctor Charles Drew? You know, it, and it's just one person he- with this vast impact. And I find that so fascinating. And you even helped eradicate smallpox in India, and you were the first black woman to be admitted to the University of California in San Francisco in the late 60s. And I find that... Yes. <laughs> I find that fascinating. I want to talk about Dr. Drew first. Yes, go ahead. Um, well, Dr. Charles Drew, um, he was the first to figure out how to use blood plasma to store blood for transfusion. And this was particularly important, of course, during the Second World War. Obviously, Mm -hmm. in a war, you need blood. You need to be able to transport it to get it to where it's supposed to be. And um, it was Dr. Drew who pioneered those, those methods and organized 
the first large-scale blood bank in the U.S. during the World War II. Mm-hmm. Following the war, Dr. Drew was asked to develop the blood storage program at the American Red Cross, but he resigned soon after starting when officials there decided to begin segregating the blood of African Americans from white Americans. I mean, it was not necessary to do that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's someone who invented the whole blood transfusion methods, and then you, you do some vastly discriminatory thing. It's absolutely stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Dr. Drew went on to be chief surgeon at Freedman's Hospital in Washington, D.C. So... Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and see, during the Civil War, or not Civil War, sorry, uh, the Civil Rights Movement. World War II? Uh, well, oh, right. even, yeah, even in World War II into the Civil Rights Movement, you know, African Americans could not access the education that the white Americans could get going to these universities and stuff, especially in the South. So it's almost like they had to fast track and advance themselves uh to gain the education they needed to get into the field, in the medical field, I guess you would say. In the medical field. Yeah, and I find that... Yes, I mean... Very honorable that they did that, you know, that they really put themselves, threw themselves into the mix and, and went with it and drove hard and succeeded in what they had to do. And they had a lot of makeup time that they had to, to gain. And we were just kind of talking about that, about Henrietta Lacks, that when they found her, mm. um, the Gila, uh, when they were putting out peer reviews, they weren't saying that she was an African-American because uh, white yeah. America at that <laughs> time. I can assure you they would have had. Yeah. yeah uh, you know, they were <laughs> like, well, we don't want an African-American gene put into our, you know, medical studies and stuff like that. But her the Gila, the Gila has saved thousands, millions of lives today. Thousands, yeah, yes. and it's used so Absolutely. much. Yeah, so and finally, she's getting recognition for that. And I hope, I think, uh, her family should get some monetary mm-hmm. um, uh, amount also, because uh, people have made money off of that Gila, and so some of that should go back to the source the person who who gave that. Um, But I think uh, certainly after the Civil War, uh, African-Americans that wanted to go to medical school, there were only two medical schools that were available for them that they could get into. One was Meharry in Nashville, Tennessee, and the other was Howard University uh, School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, if you can only um, apply and be admitted to only two schools, that's really limiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that there, you know, with the uh, uh, intensity and the desire for absolute segregation, so to speak, it's, it's, it's a wonder that they never developed a, an all-black medical school. Um, you know, in, in, unless Howard was an all-black medical school, I, I I don't know that. It is. Those are two. They're they're those are the two. They're. I'm. Well, I can't say I'm sure. Uh, 
probably uh, they did admit some uh, white students, but they were uh, primarily for uh, African-Americans. So you could apply to Meharry or to Howard, mm-hmm. um, 99% uh, African-American. But you have, you know, 70 medical schools. So you have uh, people who live in all the states and uh, not to be able to go to the medical school in your state, um, it's, um, you, you know, it was really limiting because if you couldn't get in, then you had to figure out what you were, else you were going to do, you know, with your life. Um, but even after you got your medical degree, um, it was extremely difficult to go into um, specialties. Uh, actually, my dad um, was an orthopedic surgeon, um, and his father um, was um, a general practitioner. So I'm third-generation African-American doctor. Um, my grandfather, he went to the University of Illinois because he, when he went to school, um, the University of Illinois was open to African-Americans right after the Civil War. By the time my dad came up to go to school, uh, Illinois was not open, and he went to Meharry. But he could not get admitted to any residency for orthopedics, and he had to go to the U.K., to Britain, to do his orthopedic training. Now, Crazy. Now, your grandfather was admitted to the University of Illinois. And what, 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 how, yes, but what, that was right after. What kind of a black epiphany uh, right. occurred between yeah, the end of the Civil War and your father when to go to uh, medical school that they said that they were medical not going to accept school. black students anymore? Well, what was the reasoning well, behind that? Makes no sense. Well, I, I haven't researched um, Illinois, but, you know, right after uh, the Civil War, and then in the South, I mean, I wouldn't say Illinois is in the South, but that whole Reconstruction, Jim Crow laws, it became, you know, and more and more uh, universities, I mean, they were restricted. But uh, he definitely couldn't, I mean, by the time my, do- my father wanted to go to medical school, there were only two black medical schools available. Yeah, that, it's... It it just seems that it's such a dark thing to say, to 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 um, promulgate the, this uh, segregation after the Civil War when they it, it was hey well, this would be a good idea let's get everybody involved and they said no we don't want to get involved anymore it, it that that is so counter to you know the thinking that you know uh, I, that or le- legitimate thinking or logic thought process it just makes no sense but clearly. Uh, even amongst physicians and even amongst uh, medical school uh, 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 staff or uh, administrators that they thought that uh, segregation or not segregation, limitation of education was still a good idea. Discrimination, yes. Yeah, discrimination, yeah. You know, the American Medical Association did not initially let African-American doctors join and that's why um, the uh, African Americans developed their own association. It's 
called the National Medical Association. It's the nation's oldest and largest organization representing black physicians. And it was this organization that kept on petitioning the American Medical Association to take in, to admit African-American doctors. I mean, it's just been a continuous fight. Best thing about a podcast is it can't get you sick and it makes your day a little bit better on another episode of the Best of the Tom Bernard Podcast brought to you by Bradshaw and Bryant. Great clips this week from Michael Osterholm. Steve Hotze and Cornelia Davis. Thanks for listening, everybody. And there is toilet paper available at the 494 and Penn Target. Get there before it's gone. See you next week. I